Hello and welcome to the Sorbet Mesa podcast. As always, with me, your host, Alan McGuire. Owen can't be here this week or this episode because he's off on his holidays after working uh, this summer. And I'm just revising for exams. Although we have been having some fun uh, with the podcast. If you haven't listened to the last episode, which was on Spanish Republicans joining the British Army, then do take a listen to that. We've also been playing about on Twitter. Uh, as many of your listeners will know, we like to share random information, videos, photos on our Twitter uh, account, which is Sobremesa Cast, uh, if you want to follow us. All one word. And recently, midway through August, we found a map of Europe that was talking about anger and it showed the percentage of people that experienced anger uh, during a lot of the day. So the UK had 19%, so did Ireland, France had 19%, uh, Germany 21%, Turkey was 48% and Spain was 22% whilst their neighbours in Portugal were 8%. So we asked the question, why so angry Spain? So here are some of the responses we got on Twitter from some of our followers. And some of them are quite funny. (laughs) The question is, why is the UK so happy? We are not happy, we are up to the eggs. That is different. Portugal are so stinking happy because they got the good beachfront. Pedro Sanchez, Pedro Sanchez, fed up with Sanchez. Football, fed up with Sanchez. Right-wing media polarising the country because they don't accept losing power. And then a more thoughtful, we are extremely complicated regional cultures, histories and politics because we never defeated fascism. Franco died in bed, so many of his ideological descendants still in power. And where are all the bodies of our grandparents and Lorca? Choose one. Pedro Sanchez, the Pessoe. It's really easy. Don't put chorizo in the paella. That's why all of us are always angry. Paella with Tricha makes us cry. Please don't do it. Because after still so many years, you still don't know how to use a balcony. I think that one was aimed at me. I feel that's quite personal, actually. Because we are next to France. And my favourite one, have you tried to use the Renfe website? Well, yeah, that's enough to make anybody angry. And someone has also questioned, is this anger related to the consumption of kebabs? Well, maybe that explains why Turkey is so angry, but I thought they had good kebabs. So yes, basically, from the replies that we got, we summarised it. Well, the major reasons for Spain being angry are Pedro Sanchez, Giris, and Franco. Um, but also, someone did point out, was this questionnaire conducted after a Real Madrid win, which would obviously affect the results. And this week's episode is on Scots that decided to join the International Brigades and their specific political context when put in contrast with the rest of uh, the United Kingdom. Fraser Rayburn is a historian of transnational mobilisation and his book on Scots and the Spanish Civil War is out with Edinburgh University um, Publishing House.
With me today on the Sobre Mesa podcast, I have Fraser Rayburn, who is a historian from Sheffield University and the writer of Scots in the Spanish Civil War, Solidarity, Activism and Humanism. Welcome to Sobre Mesa, Fraser. Thank you very much for having me today. So your book is now, we were just talking before we started recording, your book has just jumped from being one of these extortionate academic books to now being in paperback, right? It has indeed. It is now a price of uh, £20 sterling if, if you're buying in Britain. Um, I'm not quite sure what the euro price is, actually, um, which, is, which, is, which is a price I think it might actually be worth, which is not a sentence I could utter before the paperback came out. <laughs> um, but yeah, no, it's, it's, it's even available. I found it in a bookshop the other day, which was a wonderful oh, moment of validation for me. That's amazing. Um, so, uh, Fraser... When we often talk about the International Brigades, often the figure uh, from Britain is lumped together with Ireland. Um, and they're put together despite there being various motivations for for traveling to fight in Spain. Um, but you concentrate on the, the, the Scottish context. So can you tell us a bit about the Scottish context and why you think you know, this separate narrative is important. So Scotland um, is not distinctive in the same way that Ireland is. Ireland is its own little bag of chaos um, in this particular context and really stands alone. There's not really a, a good comparison to be made with any other contingent of volunteers. Um, Scotland, in that sense, is, is a bit more a bit more normal. It, they're, they're much more easily integrated into the, the British Battalion and other international units there's 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 no it's very difficult in some ways to 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 sketch out a particular scottish story once they're in spain um you know they're integrated you know they serve alongside um their other international comrades and there's no distinct scottish units or anything like that uh-huh. which might be why there's been relatively little scholarship on them mm. um uh, but what i think i mean i think there are two answers to the question of why a scottish narrative is worthwhile and the first one is, 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 is kind of the, the old parochial one, is that this is a really interesting and I think quite important chapter of kind of Scottish radical history in its own right. Um, particularly for some reason, um, Scottish, Scottish historians of radical history tend to ignore the 1930s. Um, it's kind of a decade which is a bit of an embarrassment for Scottish radical politics in a lot of ways. They're, they're, a lot of people making a lot of bad decisions and then there's the, the depression and then also, the Second World War is then kind of awkward if you're a Scottish historian because that's when British perspectives start to, to matter a lot more. You know, mm. you know the, the story of the road to uh, to Munich or from Munich is not one in which you, you can really maintain a particularly Scottish perspective. But I think the Spanish Civil War is a really interesting exception to that. It is a moment when a particularly Scottish politics really does kind of matter in shaping the response that people have to the conflict in Spain. And that's demonstrated really easily because if we look at the British contingent um, in the international brigades, most counts would put it 2,300 to 2,500 people went from Britain mm. to fight in the international brigades. Um, over 500 of them were Scots at a time when uh, Scotland made up you know, roughly 10% of the British population. There's oh, a wow. massively disproportionate Mm. number of Scots who joined the international brigades more than any other region of Britain. Yeah. Um, so that brings me to the other reason why I think a Scottish narrative is interesting is because it is one of several regions around the world. Um, you can point to, to you know, the, the north of France or 
around New York City in, in the United States or Vancouver, I think, in, in, in Canada, where recruitment happens on a scale and intensity that doesn't happen everywhere. Why? And so a lot, a lot of my, my motive and what I, why I hope the book is going to be interesting to people who, who, who aren't Scottish is why does recruitment like this happen with intensity in some places and not others? Uh-huh. And that, that, I think, is one of the keys to explaining why the international brigades are such a unique phenomenon. Like why are there some places where you could recruit on such a relatively large scale for this kind of undertaking? And I, I suppose a thing that's related to this as well, uh, but isn't the main topic of, of your book or, or this podcast, is the aid for Spain was also big in Scotland. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, um, it's, it's another area, I think, and it, perhaps even more so than with the Intash Brigade volunteers, where you really start to realise how much local politics or regional or national, however you want to frame it, how much like, political cultures, kind of community organising and so on, really starts to matter because aid for spain is 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 mostly a very decentralized movement it's about local communities local organization like trades unions or political parties kind of banding together to sustain activism over over what turned into you know a nearly three-year-long war and then there's you know fundraising that goes on afterwards for refugees and so on and so the character of these movements take on the character of local politics and in, in my book, I actually explore quite a lot, um, particularly um, around Edinburgh, Glasgow and Fife, looking at all these little permutations of what was it that shaped Aid for Spain? What shaped the priorities of these movements? Who do they give money to? You know, were they going for, you know, slightly more radical, um, you know, projects like supporting the international brigades with kind of money as well as volunteers? Or, they, you know, adopting a kind of more humanitarian um, approach that's you know focusing on say food supplies or medicine or something like that and so these lo- these decisions are getting made at a very local level and so people make very different decisions based on you know their priorities of what they understand the conflict to be about and so rather than seeing it as a national British movement directed by you know committees based in London I think it's much more interesting mm. to look at aid for Spain from the grassroots up. And what were some of the decisions they made out of interest? Well, the, the, the one I really, I think the, the best region to illustrate this is, is Fife, which um, for those of you less familiar with Scotland is, is kind of the, um, the region directly north of Edinburgh over the Firth of Forth. And it's very, it's very well known as a mining district in the 1930s, coal mining. And what you get is a lot of mining communities, which are very, very radical, um, certainly within a British context. It's one of the Communist Party strongholds. Uh, the MP for West Fife is the only communist MP in parliament by the mid 1930s. And you get a lot of committees formed very early on, um, from the beginning of 1937, who see themselves very explicitly as being formed not just to support Spanish workers, but also to support the international brigades. So this is written into their, their, you know, their, their, their original meetings that say, OK, this is what we're raising money for, Spanish workers and the international brigades. And this is very unusual in Britain um, to have that purpose baked in from, from such an early point. But in contrast, um, because of the strength of the Communist Party, because of like the radicalism of the miners um, from grassroots level, the mining trade union of the region is actually quite conservative. They're petrified that they're going to get taken over by the communists. And the the leadership, at least, has a very kind of bureaucratic um, kind of traditional labor movement attitude towards the whole thing. And they're incredibly suspicious of aid Spain because they see it as a, a kind of communist uh, front to kind of penetrate the union and mm. uh, build their influence. And so not just in a, in a regional level, but on a, on a national level, 
they're pulling the brake at all times, you know. They, they might get sort of like a subordinate uh, sort of branch committee say, hey, let's give a hundred pounds to the Spanish Republicans. Like, mm, can we though? Can we afford that? Let's make it 20 and let's wait a few months uh, talking about it to do it. And so unlike another region, so if we, we compare it to say Lanarkshire um, in the West of Scotland, uh, sort of around Glasgow, where the mining union is very much more open, they're not as worried about communists or at least some of them are actually communists they're much more willing to kind of put institutional resources behind this. And someone, when, you know, a cause asks for, for money, they're like, yep, done, done and dusted. Uh, um, so they give much more, much more frequently, and they don't slow down sort of higher effort, sort of higher level efforts to, to get the ball rolling in other ways. So there's these real differences that emerge based very much on kind of local po political understandings about what the war is about and priorities and electoral mm. politics and all these different stuff which really profoundly shaped what aid Spain was, was like. Um, so yeah, Fife is a wonderful example of support specifically for the international brigades, but they had to do it outside the structures of the labor movement in order to, to succeed. Wow. So regarding the, the 500 and plus uh, Scots that went to the international brigades, uh, who recruited them? What were they like? What backgrounds did they come from? Because often we hear the international brigades is like, Either well, there's I think there's two narratives, right? There's the narrative of they were all hardened communist miners, and then there's the other version, which is like there were all poets and artists and 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 you know the uh, the George Orwells of the International Brigades. But uh, yeah, can you tell us a bit about you know their background and who recruited them and at what stages did they also go as well? Yeah, so. When it comes to, to Scotland, um, and one of the reasons I like studying the Scots is that you've got almost precisely zero George Orwells amongst them. Right, um, okay. You got very, very few um, Scottish volunteers who, who you can even like start to call middle class. Um, you, get, you get a couple of journalists, but they're kind of journalists who, you know, maybe they write a, a piece or two for the Daily Worker or something like that. You don't have many university graduates at all. You know, you can count them on one or two hands. Um, and they are much more solidly working class and contingent. Uh, well, 95% uh, at a minimum have uh, a background in, manu uh, in manual labour based occupations. Some of them are indeed miners. Um, more of them are kind of uh, coming from industrial cities like Glasgow or Dundee up in the, up in the northeast. Um, and that's where recruit, so about half of them come from in and around Glasgow in that kind of, you know, very dense sort of heavy industrial belt in central West Scotland. And then you see other, you know, fairly significant clusters in the other Scottish cities. Um, uh, Dundee, I mentioned, but also Edinburgh and to a lesser extent, Aberdeen. Um, so the, these are, these are the, mostly the urban working class um, then mm -hmm. miners in their own uh, special uh, little category. Um, I think the other narrative you mentioned was, I think, is a bit more relevant um, because I, I would personally argue, um, I mean, at least about 55, 60% of them are kind of paid up members of the Communist Party. Right. But even the others um, tend to have some kind of formal or informal association with the communist movement. Mm. And that's not to say that, you know, this is like, you know, this is, this is not kind of a, a, a hit job. Um, you know, being a communist in the 1930s was, was, did not mean, you know, uh, being a terrible person, particularly somewhere like Britain, where it's, you know, really about, you know, 
people trying to imagine what an alternative future could look like yeah. well before the crimes of Stalin become known. Indeed, many of them leave the Communist Party in you know the 1950s and 1960s precisely because you know they no longer find it possible to be to look at it with kind of idealism. Um, but the connection to the Communist Party is, I think, important for explaining why they went. Yeah, I mean, it's the tragedy of the, of the British Communist Party, right? I mean, it's, we could do... <laughs> I, I've read several books on it, and it, it's, quite, it's quite sad, really. Um, but yeah, no, interesting. And so it's the Communist Party that mainly was the main recruiter of these people. Yeah, absolutely. And this, this, we, we, we can see this relatively clearly from the accounts of those who volunteered. It was, it was even if you weren't a communist, um, if you were serious about joining the Interbrigades, you had to find a communist. Basically, there were local uh, figures. Um, so in in Glasgow, there's a, a chap named Middleton who was kind of the person who you went to see if you if you wanted to volunteer, and you know they'd uh, kind of give you a once over to determine suitability. Um, and you know, as, as the war went on, they got a bit stricter about who they would accept. And in the first kind of enthusiastic rush, so you asked before, I think, about when they went, what's interesting about the Scots is that you don't see many in the first months because you had to have a bit of private means and independence to get to Spain independently, of course. Right, okay. You know, you needed your own passport. You uh-huh. you, you needed to, to have the kind of the money and confidence to travel across borders. But by the winter, so, you know, around about December, the Communist Party is starting to 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 get things a bit more organized. They're coordinating with the French Communist Party to develop quite a well-established route, you know, through Paris, through the south of France, and then over uh-huh. the Pyrenees. And that enables a lot more of these working class Scots to think about going. So you see a real rush, sort of December 36 through maybe February 37, um, when you see, you know, I think about 40% of the Scottish contingent, the eventual Scottish contingent arrive in Spain. Um, and so, and this was being done through these kind of local Communist Party contacts who, who would act as a bit of gatekeepers. You know, they didn't want uh, anyone who was, you know, had political beliefs that were, you know, anathema to the whole thing. And yeah. as increasingly as they went on, they're also worried about things like fitness. Um, you know, do you have a lot of dependents who we're going to be responsible for? Are you going to be able to, you know, undertake the kind of very strenuous activities required to fight in Spain? And so they start preferring younger volunteers and volunteers who aren't married. Right. And are there any uh, individual stories that stand out? The, the, the story I like to tell, um, you know, just to give a, an overview, they're a fascinating bunch of people, is the story of the Murray family. Uh, this is a, a set of, I think, uh, seven siblings, but there are, there's a handful of them who are particularly relevant. Um, the, the sister, Annie, Annie Murray, is actually the first of the family to go to Spain um, in 1936. She's there as a nurse, and she's there for just about the entire conflict. She stays in Spain, uh, I think, the longest of any Scot, uh, working uh, eventually in the International Brigade uh, kind of medical corps. Her brother George uh, joins them, joins her in in the International Brigade in May 1937. He's initially with the anti-tank battery, then serves, you know, a few serves in in a more of a political aspect. He actually becomes one of the battalion's uh, representatives to the uh, to Republican military intelligence. Right. Uh, by the end of the conflict as a sergeant. And then April 38, the a th- a third sibling, Tom, who's a councillor, local councillor in Edinburgh, officially for the Labour Party, secretly for the Communist Party, <laughs> um, 
he's, he's sort of told by the party that it'd be good publicity that, it, that if he went over too. So he goes over and he's a political commissar there for about six months oh, wow. um, towards the end. Um, so all, all three of them spent significant time in Spain. And then also uh, uh, the, these, these three siblings are very well known in kind of, you know, international brigades circles in Scotland. The one who gets left off a bit is Tom's wife, uh, Janet, who actually takes over Tom's aid Spain activities. Um, when he goes off to Spain in April 1938, she becomes the, the chairman of the, the Edinburgh Joint Committee for Spanish Relief. And she's, she turns out to be an absolutely phenomenal organiser. Wow. I mean, this is a period of time when women aren't really allowed to be organisers. Um, mm. You know, they, they, can do the, they can do the legwork. They can, you know, man the bake stales and collect the, collect the money. But you don't see a lot of women in leadership positions. And Janet is kind of a, a real mould breaker in that regard. It's not necessarily easy for her. The trade unions are all a bit suspicious of this, this lady in their midst. But she, she quadruples the income of the committee. She raises a fantastic amount of money. She becomes this amazing speaker who's kind of rivaling kind of national politicians um, in, you know, these, these great big meetings in places like Usher Hall. So she, she's my favorite, she's my secret favorite of the Murrays because she, she's the one who stays home, but is in some ways doing these really remarkable things as well. Mm. Well, what was their experience of the war what were they, how were they treated when they come back to Scotland? So I think when we, when, particularly if we, we keep our kind of Scottish hats on, um, as I want to do, um, it's, it's very hard to say that there was a, a particular Scottish experience of Spain. You know, they were yeah. finally along, um, particularly other British, um, you know, American, Canadian comrades. Yeah. You know, the, there was, as I said before, there was no Scottish unit, so there's no, you know, except on an individual level, you know, these stories of heroism um, on a unit level don't really work for Scotland. What I do find interesting though, is that being Scottish does still kind of matter around the margins because one of the, the, the results of, you know, if, if you're recruiting in a, you know, a, a, a pool of people associated with the Scottish Communist Party, this is a very small pool of people. You know, we're talking, you know, a party with about two to 3,000 members in the late 1930s. Right. And hundreds of them are going to Spain. And what that means is that they already tend to know each other. They're recruiting in, you know, among social circles as well as political circles. And so the story of, you know, these three siblings ending up in Spain together is actually kind of typical. Right. You know, the, the, you, you know people from home when you're in Spain. And that doesn't necessarily matter that much, you know, when you're in a trench. You know, it might affect who the guy in the trench is next to you, but ultimately you're still fighting the same battle. Where it does matter is the politics of the international brigades, because the, the international brigades are being run, I mean, certainly the British Battalion is basically being run by the British Communist Party in, in terms of leadership. You know, the, the officers and the political commissars are all mostly drawn from the party. And they're running at these are all people who never really expected to be running a battalion in the middle of a conventional war. And they're using their communist party training um, to shape how they go about organizing other people and to shape their expectations of what the soldiers of the international brigade um, should be doing, what they should believe in, how they should act, what discipline should look like. And what they end up meaning is that, you know, your standing in, in the Communist Party was very important to what your experience was like. Um, you know, about 90 Scots uh, 
you know, desert or attempt to desert the Inchash Brigades in, during their time in Spain. Um, and how that is understood matters a great, it matters a great deal whether you were well connected, whether you had a good social and political network among you who could kind of not necessarily, you know, put a word in the ear on your behalf, but, you know, to, who could frame your actions and understand them well. So there's a, there's a, there's a Glaswegian, a young Glaswegian man um, who'd been a member of the Young Communist League uh, named uh, Jimmy Riddell, who, who attempted to desert at one point in the middle of battle but because you know he was well known, and because people knew that he was really dedicated to the cause, he just he was he was frightened at the wrong moment. Mm. People could be very understanding of that. But if you were a bit less well connected, if people weren't so certain that you were you you had your heart in it and you're trying to do the same thing, then the consequences could be a bit more serious. You know, you could get a bit of a, a bit more of a harsh punishment. You know, it could follow you back to Britain even. Um, so these kind of personal connections, which are based very much on kind of who you knew at home as much as who you knew in Spain, um, could, matter, could matter a great deal. And that's where I think if you're looking for a particular Scottish yeah. experience, uh, it's not to say that, you know, Scots were uniquely well-connected, but, but if you're looking for them, Scotland in Spain, well, there were more of them. Yeah, yeah I mean, that is mathematically creates <laughs> <laughs> community, don't it, right? Because there was just more yeah. of them. Absolutely. Um, and you, you see, you know, Scots sticking together throughout the, you know, they keep in touch, you know, they write each other letters if they're not, you know, talking to each other every day. And they, they use those letters to keep track of each other. I mean, one of the things I always enjoy about the International Brigade's kind of correspondence is that it's, it's, it's just gossip, you know, what's Fred doing this week? Oh, he's, you know, he's, he's in hospital, he's, he's bust his toe kind of thing. And they're just swapping this gossip back and forth so they can keep track of each other. Because there's no real, as I said before, it's an ad hoc army. There's no... They're, they're inventing these systems to keep track of one another, to keep, you know, communications open between Britain and Spain. And they're doing it by the seat of their pants. And these kind of informal networks of people spreading gossip are actually much more effective than the official channels that may or may not exist. So what was their experience coming back to, to Scotland? So the, they decided to disband the international brigades towards the end of um, 1938 um they kind of stuck in limbo for for a month or two because no one can really work out how to get them home you know it's a diplomatic question as well as a uh, a practical one they do eventually uh manage to get home uh, mostly in early december um at least the, the main body um arrives back um and they're greeted on one hand by cheering crowds. Um, so first at London Victoria Station, but then again in places like Glasgow and Edinburgh, you know, the local kind of A-Spain organisations and political parties organise a welcome. But the British government is, is uh, perhaps unsurprisingly a little less keen on welcoming back, you know, hundreds of, uh, hundreds of individuals who had, you know, just been fighting for their lives in, you know, quote unquote, red Spain. So, there's a big kind of question mark over how they're going to be treated by the, the British state. Um, are they going to get blacklisted? And particularly the big, the big question, one I, I spent some time looking into, is when it becomes clear as well that, you know, another war against Germany is on the horizon, are they going to be allowed to join the British armed forces? You know, are they, are they, are they, are they welcome participants in what was going to be, you know, a national anti-fascist war that was going to kick off less than a year later? 
and that's that, that's where I think there's there's a lot of interesting ambiguities um, about who was allowed to sign up, um, who was conscripted, what kind of roles they were allowed to play. So one of the, the most prominent Scots in Spain, uh, Abedonian um, named Bob Cooney, um, he is eventually allowed to join the the British Armed Forces in in 1941, but they make sure to give him a, a, a very kind of banal posting. So he becomes a searchlight operator for most of the war and he's not allowed to leave Britain. He keeps petitioning to be transferred to units on the continent after D-Day and they keep finding excuses to say no. And he's kind of kept under kept under close watch while he's with his with his unit. Um, Cooney's a bit a bit exceptional though like he he, he literally stood to parliament um, for the Communist Party in 1944 as well. So he was he was hard he was he was, he was a, an easy nail to hit as it were. And I think there's a tendency in the, the, some of the history writing about this to kind of assume that this kind of treatment was more typical than it was. So someone like Cooney or other prominent members of the Communist Party were definitely kind of kept tabs on or blacklisted and, you know, like very carefully managed by the British state during the Second World War. But... They're kind, the kind of people who would have been anyway, if that makes sense. Yeah. You know, you know, Cooney is one of, you know, the most prominent communists in Scotland. He would have been on the kind of list of people, list of people to, mm. to get this treatment during wartime. And what I found when I, when I kind of dug in, and this is, what, this is why Scotland was kind of useful, because it is, you know, this really kind of grassroots perspectives that I was dealing with, is that for the most part, kind of rank and file volunteers were okay so long as after the war broke out, they didn't engage in kind of overt anti-war activism. So obviously before the invasion of the Soviet Union, um, you know, there, there, there was this ambiguity about wh which side the Communist Party should find itself on. Should it be neutral? Uh, yeah. Should it, you know, advocate staying out of what it was calling an imperialist war? And if you had wholeheartedly embraced that line and, you know, campaigned against the British war effort in say, you know, 39, 40, that's when kind of the, 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 the men in trench coats would take interest in you. But if you came back and, you know, kept your head down, basically, or you came back and you maintained an anti-fascist line that, you know, we need to confront Germany, we need to support the war effort, then you are much less likely to face specific reclamations. And so we see, you know, a reasonable number of, um, you know, ex-international brigade volunteers from Scotland go on to have quite successful uh, military careers during the Second World War. Um, it's, uh, it, it's one of those confusing pictures where there's certainly, there's certainly bias they have to overcome. You know, their, their experience in Spain isn't really treated as something that's valuable or to, right. to learn, for, learn from or anything like that. And they do have to overcome this kind of entrenched suspicion against the left that exists within the British Armed Forces itself. But it is possible to overstate the extent to which, you know, say MI5 was, you know, tailing people or tapping phones and things like that. For the most part, they only really cared about the people at the top of the party. Right. And are there any, um, are there any Scot Scottish international brigaders that really, well, became famous or really stood out after the Spanish Civil War? Not as many um, as in, you might, you might expect. Um, so in both England and Wales, you see, you know, the, some quite prominent um, form of graders, you know, like particularly within the trade union movement and things like that, you know, yeah. taking on quite prominent positions. It doesn't happen to the same extent in Scotland. Um, Tom Murray, uh, one of the, one of the Murrays I talked about earlier, um, becomes a, you know, a, a, 
I guess, a locally prominent kind of figure in radical politics. He found his own political party at one stage, one of those lovely little kind of micro left-wing parties. Oh, that, wow, already. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I think this is in the in the, the 60s or 70s. Um, you know, a few hundred members, uh, has a newspaper, uh, disappears after a while. You know, that that, that kind of thing. Yeah, not, yeah. Not really anything which you, which you could describe as um, as famous. And maybe this is another reason why the Scots have always struggled a bit to to get their their recognition as as kind of a distinct narrative within the British context because you know the, the you get a lot of these the these volunteers are, are locally recognized and recognizable you know Scotland has at this point I think about 25 or 30 local memorials to wow, international yeah. brigades they've always been commemorated in things like um, theater art exhibitions plays mm music and so on you know the memory of of all of this has stayed alive um even after the last of the scots um died in the last sort of um, 10 15 years so it's not it's never really been a question and it's one of the things which which I, I try to make very clear in my book is that you know i'm not some you know fancy historian with a phd who's going to rescue this history from oblivion and no one would have known this story without me yeah very much about you know looking at something which has been remembered and the reasons why it's been remembered is mm. why I think it's important to study. This is a story which has always resonated um, with local communities, with the Scottish left. Um, there was a great film um, a couple of years back uh, called Ne Passaran about, um, about some Scottish factory workers who kind of, you know, grounded um, Pinochet's air force um, after, after the coup um, by refusing to repair their engines. Um, and in that film, they, they make explicit reference to the Intash Brigades as part of the historical memory they were drawing on to understand their own kind of actions um, back during uh, Pinochet's regime. And that's, that's the way, that's where I think the significance of this memory is, is that, you know, it, it's part of the mythology of the Scottish left. And so it should also be part of Scottish history writing, in my view. And yeah. it's, it's a real shame that it's taken so long for kind of historians of Scotland to to pay close attention to these stories. And I suppose it's 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 kind of poetic. I mean, it's a lot more communist. That it's part of a national narrative, a collective community narrative, than it yeah. is having just you know one or two recognisable figures. Yeah. There's a bit more common in 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 say England, right? Yeah. Uh, which yeah. is that's that's fascinating. Yeah, I mean, one of the the really interesting. D developments lately is of course with the rise of, of Scottish nationalism and the Scottish National Party there's been kind of a some effort to approach these volunteers from a national angle um, in a way which I think sits I mean obviously the connection between Catalonia and Scotland and you know the campaigns for yeah. independence are like a you know a, a kind of a touchstone already and then trying to fit the, the International Brigade volunteers into this is I think a an interesting historical challenge and like you know and there's a, a kind of a widespread desire on you know the, the broadly defined Scottish left to celebrate the International Brigade volunteers but in doing so they obliterate some of the political differences that were really important at the time um, you know the, there's a very famous um, Scottish volunteer who's uh, with George Orwell in the ILP contingent with the POOM um, who, who died uh, uh, a guy named Bob Smiley who dies in a, a Spanish prison after May 37. 
And, you know, there, there's, there've been long-standing conspiracy theories about exactly, you know, what kind of foul play might've been involved in that. Yeah. And so there's a very local, you know, tension to those kind of very Spanish political maneuverings that we see during the Republic. So I think there's a lot of interesting tension in contemporary commemoration. Thanks very much for your time. Thank you very much for having me. It's been, it's been great to chat with you. Thank you.